Hey, it's Ben. Thank you for listening to the Upgraded Executive Podcast. We are bringing you insights from experts around the world so you can improve your personal and professional performance. Welcome to episode 21, Mind Optimization, Fusing Brain Science and Human Psychology. In this episode, Nick and Ben are talking with Dr. Srini Pillay, who is a brain science innovator who applies his training, research and experience in medicine, psychiatry, biotechnology, brain science and music to the development of innovative services and technology in the health and leadership development sectors. We deep dive into brain science, human psychology, and Srini shares many practical tips on improving cognitive function that can be applied in everyday life. Please like and subscribe on YouTube, iTunes or SoundCloud and visit www.upgradedexecutive.com forward slash subscribe and we will send you a special link so you can access the videos one week before we officially release them. Shreeni, welcome and thank you for your time and nice to meet you. You too. Thank you so much for having me. Could you talk us through how you got here today and explain about your background for the audience, please? Sure. So a lot of what I do is not on the internet because it just sounds sort of confusing, but in, in many ways, it's, I think it's just been an organic outgrowth of being alive and being a curious human being. Uh, the, the way that I generally describe myself is I, I tell people I'm sort of at the nexus of science, art, and technology. Um, you know, from a scientific perspective, uh, I've been a physician uh, for about 30 years. I uh, am a psychiatrist. Um, I, uh, I was trained at Harvard, I stayed there on as an assistant professor. I, uh, my background is also in brain imaging research. So I uh, studied brain blood flow, focusing on anxiety and stress. Uh, and, and then with that background, uh, I, I also ran the anxiety disorder service. And what I found was that when I ran the anxiety disorder service, um, I, I suddenly started attracting a lot of people from corporations, and they didn't want medication, and they didn't want psychotherapy. So I trained to become a certified master executive coach. And then using my background in executive coaching, brain science, um, and, and in uh, sort of human psychology, I pioneered a field called neurocoaching, which I'm currently calling transformational neurocoaching, because what I do is I use uh, insights from brain science and human psychology within organizations and business theory to help leaders develop their thinking, uh, both for themselves and their teams. And essentially, what we do is sort of ask questions like, how can leaders help improve the productivity and creativity of their teams? How can they improve their, their agility? You know, are there ways in which they can manage their stress and anxiety uh, sort of more effectively within organizations? So that's that's one part of my life. I also work in biotechnology across cancer, heart disease, and stroke, and, and basically work with investment companies to help them understand uh, whether drugs are going to reach uh, the FDA or not. So I do analyses of those drugs. Um, and then with, with the arts, I've just finished writing a musical, uh, and I'm actually currently working on another music-related project on gospel music and brain science with uh, a partner from, from IBM. And on the technology side, I've just um, accepted an offer to become the chief medical officer of a virtual reality startup called Roulet, which is targeted at managing stress and anxiety within corporations. And then I have about six uh, sort of early stage technology startups myself. So I'm, I'm doing all of those things simultaneously. And 
I think the reason I can do that many things is that they're all pretty connected uh, for me, even though when I describe them, they sound like you know, I'm going to have to rush from one thing to another. How do they connect? <clears throat> well, the, the, the two things that are common to all of the projects are um, human psychology and brain science. Uh, and since those are two areas of my expertise, that's really, uh, you know, with the music, the musical, um, the musical, it's a classic musical, but half of the musical is actually about, uh, it's, a, it's a coming of age story of, of a young man. And half of the, the musical is focused on uh, dueling and fights and uh, between constructs in his mind. So the characters are actually sort of uh, psychological constructs, like sadism and masochism and clarity and paradox. So I, I bring an application of those things to pretty much everything that I do. Can you start off by talking us through your latest book? So, so Tinker Dabble Doodle Try, uh, Unlock the Power of the Unfocused Mind, um, was actually inspired by a conversation that I had with my agent. She was, we were trying to figure out what I should write about. When I told her all the things I was doing and that I was on time with all of those things, and I was talking, she said, I think you're really well positioned to talk about the meaning of unfocus and how that can help people's lives. And the, the idea here was that, you know, when I say this initially to people, most people are just sort of still like, no, no, thanks. You know, I, I'm unfocused enough. I'm distracted enough. I don't need to learn how to become distracted. But the reality is that, uh, you know, focus on its own is, I obviously, you can't get anything done. You can't write a book if you're not focused. So you have to have, you have to have a certain amount of focus. But, but what people don't realize is that you have to, most people go focus, 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 fatigue, and then they're completely out by the end of the day. Whereas I think if you do focus, unfocus, focus, unfocus, focus, unfocus, you're refueling your brain throughout the day. And as a result of that, you actually can, can feel more energized and more creative. So I wrote that book essentially to help people learn how to learn strategic ways to unfocus so that they could change their brains to become more creative and productive. The essence, the idea about focus is that although focus is really helpful, there are a few things about focus that I think leaders should really be thinking about. So if, you're, if you are a CEO, if you're really anywhere in a company, part of what you want to be asking yourself is, you know, am I managing my energy well? And that's because what we know about focus is that focus drains the brain of energy. So a study was done where they took two groups of people. They asked one group to look at a video as usual, and they asked the other group to, to intensely focus. And what they found was that the group that looked at the video as usual, when they asked them later to attend to a moral dilemma, were pretty engaged. But if you focused intensely, you, most, the people in that group didn't really care. And they only started to care when they gave them glucose, which suggested that you actually lose your compassion when you lose your energy and focus. If you focus all day without building breaks into your day, you lose that compassion. So that's the first disadvantage of focus. In addition to that, when people, although it sounds great to be focused, the truth is when you focus and you're not paying attention to what's around you, you can actually miss out on what's going on with the competition. Anne Wang, for example, who invented the word processor, was busy inventing the word processor version 2 when the PC came in the market. And since he wasn't paying attention, he eventually became bankrupt. So knowing what's happening in the wings and taking your head off of your own work is really important. The third thing is that focus itself makes you go sort of forward through life with your nose to the grindstone. So the problem with that 
is that if you're just going through life with your nose through the grindstone, you're not paying attention to upcoming trends. And so, you know, a lot of people didn't realize that robots were going to replace what they're doing. They didn't realize that they needed to become digital companies sooner rather than later. They didn't realize that nobody was going to retail stores anymore and that they needed to develop online businesses. So it really does make a difference if you can not just keep your nose to the grindstone, but to look up ahead, to look at upcoming trends. The fourth thing is that when you are focused, you're focused from one point. But innovation often requires looking at two or more points. So if you're not unfocused, you're never going to be able to see, you know, like a lot of companies are saying, well, I know I'm, a, I'm an online store, but maybe I should get into healthcare. Uh, you know, the pharmacies are deciding that maybe they should also get into, uh, you know, sell other products. So for a lot of businesses, uh, looking beyond themselves so that they can innovate is important. And so unfocused is important. And then the last thing I'd say is that focus is great. It sort of allows you, like, if you, like it's like describing myself to you. Like, essentially, what I did was give you a short version of my LinkedIn profile. The, the problem is it's not really who I am. Right? I mean, if you think about it, the focus basically gives you a very sort of LinkedIn-esque type of profile. So it says, you know, this is, this is my background. This is my training. This is what I did. Uh, it's like picking up pieces of your identity in a not-so-subtle way with a fork, whereas unfocus actually allows you to metaphorically tell people about parts of your identity that you can't define quite as succinctly. So things metaphorically that you might pick up with a spoon, like the delicious melange of flavors of your identity, like the, the scent of your grandmother, or what it felt like to be walking around in the fall, or why you like a particular way of being. You know, that, uh, in addition, Unfocus also invites chopsticks to the table. So it allows you to actually make connections across the brain and it enhances who you are. And then the third thing is that Unfocus also helps you to unearth memories that focus cannot unearth. Because when you focus, you can really get into to the more macro memories. But a lot of business intelligence is really about unearthing those types of memories that are not that overt so that you can have the Eureka experiences that you want. You know, I think Steve Jobs, for, for a reason, said, talked about in his Stanford commencement speech, talked about the fact that you cannot join the dots moving forward. You can join them looking backwards or moving forward. In his own words, you know, you, you, have to, you have to believe in something. You have to believe in gut, what he called gut, karma, life, destiny, whatever. And I think what Unfocus does is it allows the whatever to surface. And so for those five reasons, being focused, you know, just to list them again, firstly, it makes you lose your energy. You actually develop blinker vision, so you can't see what's happening around you. You lose sight of upcoming trends. You are not able to be innovative, and you're not able to be fully present as yourself. So for that reason, building unfocus uh, is, is in incredibly important, and I'm happy to go into methods to do that as well, if, if you'd like to talk about that. Yeah, please do. <laughs> So, so when you when you think about unfocus, uh, you know, again, I'll, I'll t the book is just filled with lots of techniques about how to do this. I'll, I'll mention a few that are quite simple that maybe people uh, would should reflect on. Uh, the the first is napping. So, five to fifteen minutes of napping gives you one to three hours of clarity, which is really important because I think I remember those days when. You know, I would be, I'd have a task to do. And we all know that feeling after lunch where you feel like I've got to finish this, I've got a deadline, and you drag yourself through to the end. 
but you're really working with the brain that's not doesn't have any fuel. So if you give five to fifteen minutes can, can give you one to three hours of clarity, wh- why would you not nap? You know, now for creativity, you you need a full ninety minutes, um, and that's not really practical in a work week for most people. Um, and when I say this to people, they will sometimes say, "Oh, come on, I can't. Work. You know, am I going to tell my boss to nap?" And I would say, "Yes. In fact, companies like Google and Zappos." actually have napping pots. So and they do that in part because they recognize that if you need to be refreshed, it makes sense for your productivity. The, the second thing is a technique that I call uh, positive constructive daydreaming. Uh, it was actually discovered by Jerome Singer in the 1950s. And what Singer found was that when you are trying to unfocus, if you daydream while just sitting at your desk, it's not that helpful. If you daydream by maybe remembering the prior night's indiscretions. Maybe you had too much to drink. That's also not that helpful. But if you daydream so that you can, you can actually so let your mind wander while you are doing something low-key, then that's particularly helpful. So something like knitting or gardening, or if you're at work going out for a walk, then, then that actually allows your brain to become more refreshed and more creative. So the three things are just to build it into your day. I always say build at least 15 to 20 minutes. You can do it at the end of your lunch break. You can do it at the time of your day when your brain would be in a natural slump anyway. So why, you know, why, why not use that time to refresh your brain? The third thing is doodling, which is uh, doodling. Jackie Andrade and her colleagues actually found that doodling, just scribbling on a piece of paper, maybe during a conference call, uh, can actually improve memory by 29% because the brain, rather than being like a stiff sponge, is actually able to be much looser and absorb information. Now, a more recent study has shown that this may not be true for everyone, but I would say about all of the research that I'm mentioning, that nothing is true for everyone. So I think it's important to know that there is some research out there and then try it out and see if it works for you. And the fourth is, is actually one of my favorites. It's a term that I did coin called psychological Halloweenism. And uh, <laughs> I've actually used it in corporate settings as well. And what, what this is, is based on a study that showed that if, if you want people, so they did a study where they said, here's a creative problem to solve. Uh, like, let's say we want your business to increase, the, you want to increase the pipeline, right? So this was not what it's in the study, but that would be an example of the thing. But essentially what they did was they said, come up with as many creative solutions as you can. And they asked one group, to behave like a rigid librarian, which was the stereotype for a certain kind of thinker. And they asked the other group to behave like an eccentric poet, just to literally embody the identity. And what they found was that if you behave like an eccentric poet, you were statistically significantly more likely to be more creative than if you behaved like a rigid librarian, which I think is pretty important because what it tells us is that often if we find that we're up, that we're hitting a wall, it's not so much that we cannot find a solution, it's that if you, if you are just within your, your, your old habits and old frame of mind and you don't think differently, then, then you're, you're not going to find a solution. The idea is to think like someone else. The guy actually was in the UK fairly recently and I was working with a team uh, that was particularly stressed about a, a particular business challenge that they had. And so when I worked with the human resources department, they said, you know, we, we want them to begin to feel less stuck by the fact that 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 these changes are occurring because they're feeling like this is like like the worst things have happened. They don't know what to do. So I asked them, you know, wh- how what identity uh, would would you assume in order to 
deal with the changes that are that are coming ahead. And so, and we broke up into little groups, and it was very interesting. You know, one group uh, thought of the Buddha, and they just thought of radical acceptance. Uh, the other group thought of Steve Jobs, and they they reflected on the idea that you can't join the dots moving forward; you can join it backwards. And the third group uh, actually thought of Madonna, and they thought about how Madonna's reinvented herself over and over again. And that just raised the level of of essentially of of the discussion, and it and and it made people feel much more hopeful. So, and I always tell people, psychological Halloweenism is the kind of thing you can practice, you know, at the dinner table with your kids. You can practice it on innovation teams. Um, I usually joke that you can't. You can, you can do it on a date, but maybe not a first date. <laughs> you probably want to show up as yourself. But if you're stuck for things to do, you might say, "Hey, let's like let's let's see let's see what we could be. Who could we be so that we could actually really be in love with each other?" How does it work psychologically? Yeah, so uh, the idea there is to is to just I think first you have to lose your shyness a little bit because you you know nobody like we're not all great actors so it's not like we can immediately think of that the first thing you do is actually just think who thinks directly the opposite of me I actually did a another uh, an exercise once with an international multilateral senior management team and they were trying to solve a climate change related problem and so. I said, well, just think like someone who is the opposite of who you are. And so one person put up his hand and said, listen, I'm running into problems. And I said, why? And he said, because when, you, when I said that, I thought Donald Trump, and then my mind just stopped working. I just didn't know what to think. And so I said, well, okay, so I understand you feel that way about Donald Trump, but let, let's talk about it a bit. Who would Donald Trump ask? And he said, oh, I don't know. He'd probably say, I want the best person. I want the best person for the job. And I said, well, who might that be? And he said, well, Elon Musk. And I said, well, do you, can you get to Elon Musk? And he said, sure. I said, well, even someone you don't like might be thinking in a way that, that might be helpful to you. So you, you, can, you can feel however you want to feel about anyone. But the, the reality is that if you, if you take on the challenge of let me think like someone completely different, you stop thinking in a routinized way and you stop thinking you know, in the same old habitual ways that keep you stuck. So I think the first thing is to think of an example. And then the second thing is to lose your inhibitions. If you're having trouble taking on the identity of an eccentric poet, get a nice long scarf and just walk around the room and see, see what it likes <laughs> to look outside and put your feet up and, and just start whispering sweet nothings to yourself and see what happens. Can you talk us through the highlight of one of your other books? So uh, Life Unlocked. Um, seven revolutionary lessons to overcome fear. Well, that was super interesting um, around brain business um, and the neuroscience of great leaders. Sure. So, um, so the, the book Life Unlocked was was essentially uh, about ways in which you can tap into your brain uh, to reduce fear. Now, you might ask, well, why do I need to tap into my brain to reduce fear? It's because fear and anxiety are actually much more complicated than most people realize. Uh, certainly, uh, something I'm recognizing in a lot of the work that I do, uh, people often think that the antidote to fear is just calmness. But having run the Anxiety Disorders Center, I can tell you the worst thing you can say to someone who's anxious is be calm. Like, they, they, they have no way of getting there. So if you can teach them ways, so fear generally activates a lot of different systems in the brain depending. 
But one of the key regions is the amygdala. And, and the amygdala, we have two amygdala in the brain. This is the guard dog of the human brain. Um, and so what I decided to do was to, uh, to write a book on how you could drive blood away from the amygdala, where there's too much blood resulting in too much fear, back to the prefrontal cortex so you can think more clearly. Because for business leaders, it's important to be able to think strategically, to make decisions, to measure risks. And so if the thinking brain is being, if, if, there are, if there's fear and there are earthquakes in the amygdala, there are aftershocks in the thinking brain that's connected to it. And as a result, leaders can't think well. So for most leaders, when they're thinking, man, I don't know how to solve this problem, or I can't meet this quarterly goal, or I don't know how to manage my team, when they say, I don't know how, part of what uh, they have to remember is that you don't always have to think harder. Sometimes you've got to just feel less anxious so that you can think in the way you usually think. So I, in the book, I, I describe a number of techniques. One of them I, I've summarized subsequently um, by the mnemonic CIRCA, uh, which is C-I-R-C-A. Uh, the C stands for chunking, which means when you're faced with a big problem, the first thing you can do is tell your brain, okay, let me just figure out how to chunk this down. You know, your manager, your, your leader, the leader of your team comes into the office and says, I need this report by Friday. And you're thinking, I've got to go to my wife's family's event on Thursday, I've got to do that, like, I have no time. And you say, well, okay, let me just look at the time and chunk it down. And just the act of chunking it down ahead of time calms your brain down. A lot of people say, know that they have to chunk it down, but they don't say that to themselves. So the brain stays anxious throughout that entire time. So that's the C for chunking. The I is ignore mental chatter. And, and essentially what that means is placing your attention on your breath and it's mindfulness. So placing your attention on your breath and allowing whatever's going on in your mind to go on. And you place your attention like a flashlight on your breath. And if, if your attention wanders, bring it back to your breath again. And this actually has been shown in numerous studies to decrease amygdala activation. Then the R is for reality check. And the reality check is essentially um, the, the self-talk for that. Because a lot of the, the book is based on ways you can talk to yourself to change your brain out loud or even or even silently. But the, the, the frame for reality check is this too shall pass. Because you know sometimes when you get bad news and you just feel like, oh my God, like, this is horrible. And it makes you feel like it's going to last forever. So informing your brain this too shall pass is, is remembering this is not going to last forever. You know, it's a bit like a dental appointment. Like it's horrible, but you know that it's going to end at some point. Um, then the, the second C is for control check. And the control check is, is essentially like the serenity prayer. You know, a lot of us spend time sort of worrying about things that we can't control. I can't tell you the number of people I, I talk to who are worried about climate change but doing nothing about it. Now, of course, you can control that. But if you're not going to control that, what are you doing worrying about? Right? You have to decide, if I'm worrying about this for three hours of my day, is it, is it the proper use of energy? And, and can I get some initial wins? By, by, by doing what I'm going to do. And then when I want to control that, I can control that. It's the same thing with president, same thing with the stock market. You know, if you're not doing anything about that, then why worry about this? So the C is about controlling. And then, and then the A um, is attention shift, which is shifting your attention very deliberately from the problem to the solution. So as you shift your attention from the problem to the solution, you are reminding yourself that 
that even though you know threat automatically sort of moves your your brain to to the threat, like your your attention is fixed on threat. It's like it's as if you're walking through a dark alley your entire life. But if you remind yourself to shift your attention to the solution, you start to ask the question: What are the possibilities for me? What are the ways in which I can actually solve this problem? Just asking that question turns on your brain's navigating capacity to be able to get to your goal. What's your experience, Srini, in terms of understanding the neuroscience, understanding what makes people anxious, and the role that heart rate variability might play in that? Really, heart rate variability is a, is a variable that correlates with, with stress, and things like mindfulness can influence it in a positive way. So I think the more we can uh, track those kinds of physiologic variables, the more we can see whether any one of these techniques might affect heart rate variability. The, the reality, I think, which I, I think it's always, it's always funny when people are like, oh, really, the heart and the brain are connected? It's like we actually all came from a sperm and an ovum. It was one cell. And then every organ in our bodies then developed from, from this fusion. So the heart and the brain, the brain and the gut, I mean, really all the organs in the body are very connected. So even though we think that stress impacts just the brain, the reality is that the brain and the heart are connected. One mechanism through which heart rate variability is affected is that the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is sort of like the hormone manufacturing capacity in the brain that releases hormones whenever you're stressed, can, can release hormones that will stress the heart out. And by, and by changing our stress levels, we can change the, the variability uh, that occurs in, in heart rhythm. So the, the, so I think overall what I'd want to say is that heart rate variability is, a, is an, in an indicator that, that, that you can be, that you're, that you're stressed or not, and that these mechanisms can actually help change that as well. Awesome. Are there any other ways that people can measure how stressed they are apart from, say, EEG or measuring the HRV? Are there any other mechanisms that you would recommend that people use to track their stress levels? Well, if you want to just look at your baseline anxiety level, there's a, a, a questionnaire that you can probably find easily online called the State Trait Anxiety Inventory, uh, S-T-A-I-Y, um, one and two. And this allows you to actually measure your anxiety level, um, and it allows you to um, to see how anxious you are. In, in, in terms of sort of physiologic indicators, I think a very simple thing is just looking at your actual heart rate, right? Because often when you're anxious, your heart rate goes up. Um, so people who have heart rate monitors on them um, can, can check their heart rate, or you can check your heart rate from time to time. The problem with measuring physiologic indices persistently when you're anxious is that that can increase your anxiety. So a lot of people who are anxious, for example, if you, if you get in a treadmill and your heart rate goes up, you, become, you get a panic attack. So you, you have to really decide for yourself if, if you want to be persistently measuring all of these variables or just from time to time to see if a particular intervention has helped. You touched, or you spoke about energy before. How are you defining energy? So is it, is it energy level somebody feels tired, or is it, is it, have you got a different meaning to energy? Well, I, mean, I, I think of energy in lots of different ways. I mean, the term itself. In that particular instance, I think of energy as the fatigue, level of fatigue. So... Um, if you if you are constantly 
not refueling your brain, you're, you're going to be fatigued. But I think in the ways that maybe you're implying, I mean, the idea that there might be a consciousness outside of literal consciousness uh, are, are, and maybe things that are happening outside of the brain is an idea that I'm very open to. In fact, I just wrote a whole long thing about it today, which I'm excited to post about. Uh, but I, the, I, I actually do think it's important to be able to transcend ordinary waking consciousness. And so I think techniques like meditation can be really helpful. Uh, certainly, there are studies ongoing right now around LSD and uh, psilocybin that about changing consciousness states. Um, you know, we do know that with those substances, for example, uh, you can change the default mode network in the brain and actually change the, the, the efficacy and workings of the brain. A, a recent study showed that the, the higher the number of brain circuits, with Glenn Sachs, I believe, the higher the number of brain circuits you can connect with at any given time, the more intelligent you are. So when you are in an energetic state and, 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 and you are th that kind of fatigue-related energetic state, uh, it, when, when you're not fatigued, it can allow you to access parts of yourself that are not just your literal consciousness. Like we tend to be more intolerant of abstraction when we're tired. But if we are not tired, then we can begin to really tap into things like, if you think about like our interaction on here, like, you know, what, what is like, there's a verbal interaction, but there's also some other kind of energy that gets transmitted between people when we smile, when our vocal tones change. Uh, that energy is really so it's something that can sustain you throughout a day. You know, a lot of people, I think, who are in, in corporations, one of my interests in bridging corporations with medicine is that I actually believe that corporations are, are often incubators for psychological stress. And, and psychological stress um, can turn genes on or off, it can turn cancer genes on or off. Um, and so I'm very concerned that, that we, we reduce ourselves to literal beings when we are in businesses, often for the wrong reasons. Like I can't tell you how often people will invite me into their businesses to teach them about sort of very linear ways in which you can strategically use brain science to advance things. Now, I should say, and maybe I should have said this up front, I both believe and don't believe anything that I'm saying. It's because a lot of what I'm saying is based on a body of knowledge, and knowledge is constantly changing. So uh, I think it's important to be humble about the fact that even though what I'm saying is based on a large number of studies, that this is not some kind of you know, holy grail. I, I still think eventually what really matters is to integrate this information for yourself. But when you, when you think about the way, like most people think that, you know, you've got to be strategic, the, the more strategic and linear you are, the better. Uh, but if you ask a lot of people how businesses are built, you'll find that they're actually not as linear as that sounds. The Steve Jobs example was an example. When I work with companies, I'll sometimes show them videos of, of other business leaders. Uh, recently, I've included a video of Bernie Arnault, the founder of Louis Vuitton. And, and you know, LVMH is now, it's the largest luxury company in the world. Um, and, you know, he's done pretty well. He, all his wealth has been accumulated in one generation, in built in one generation. And when you interview his son about, well, you know, your dad must be a real business powerhouse, and he must really know what he's doing, you discover all kinds of things. You realize that, Many of his initial ideas, people said no to. And when he wanted to acquire Sephora, people were like, that's a ridiculous thing. No. You know, Anna Wintour makes this comment. But she says he was totally ahead of the game. 
that Sephora would actually be something. And when his son talks about him, he says, people think my dad, that we, Louis Vuitton does like LVMH, which has a host of different companies. I think they recently just acquired Tiffany's, uh, you know, they own Christian Dior. They own a lot of different brands. He said, a lot of people think my father's is sort of very strategic in making monetary decisions, but often he buys companies at full price. And really his strength is that he's able to make creativity sort of be at the hub of what he's doing. And he unleashes the creativity of people he fully trusts without telling them what to do. And so when he does this, people come up with the most amazing ideas. And then he hands these amazing ideas off to the operations people so they can do what they need to do. So to be a leader does not necessarily mean that you've got to have some kind of strategic know-how, some kind of mathematical genius. It, It takes different kinds of people in different kinds of companies to help those companies grow. But because of the rate of change currently that's going on in businesses, you really want to be able to have someone, a key creative person in your team, who can help you stay ahead of the curve of creativity so that you can deal with the upcoming competition and find novel ways to engage audiences that's also ethical and that also feels like like it's addressing people's true needs. Yeah, when it comes to energy, it's it's important uh, to remember that linear thinking is just one way which that we can use to enhance business success. Uh, there are other ways that the brain works. You know, there's complexity theory, which tells us that, that there are multiple things going on at the same time. Uh, there's free association, which is a technique that I use in coaching and in psychotherapy. So we can get to other parts of the discussion. I was working the other day with a very senior leader who really had no interest in pursuing any kind of linear thought process. And so he felt much more energized. And we ended up using some strange vocabulary by the end of the session. Things like, you know, the fact that 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 free will or linear thinking is a great vehicle to use, but to really have exponential change, you have to find this thing which we call light. And we were talking about, is there a way in which you can access that kind of energy state so that you are consistently operating within that sphere of inspiration? And that's what we've been developing in our, in our discussion. What's your view on the law of attraction? Um, you know, I, I think it, there are positive and negative things about it, as I do about everything. I, I, my, my fundamental belief is that it is possible to put yourself in situations where things that you want can come to you. So I, I, I don't believe uh, that everything is about effort. You know, uh, so, so a lot of times, uh, it's about, you know, people say it's about being in the right place at the right time. Uh, the, well, what gets you to the right place? It, it's, it's really sort of a, a bunch of different thought processes and a bunch of different risks and possibilities. I did write a book called The Science Behind the Law of Attraction in which I described several principles uh, and how people can, uh, can really change things around them. So one example, and I work with teams on this a lot, is you know, there are, there are, uh, our brains are wired so that we can mirror other people's emotions. And a lot of times... You know, people will say, well, you know, if you have a positive energy, you'll get what you want. And if you have a negative energy, you won't get what you want. Well, here's how some of that works. When you have self-doubt, it gives rise to a bunch of different emotions. Right? And these, let's say you get fear, anxiety, like you know, unhappiness, because you have all this self-doubt. Well, if I am talking to you and I am feeling the fear and anxiety, because you have mirror neurons that can reflect my emotions automatically, you will pick that up as fear and anxiety. 
And, and then you'll start doubting me, not realizing that you're just giving back to me what I just gave to you. So I've attracted doubt from you because you are, your mirror neurons are actually reflecting my own emotion. And so I do believe that that, that, that way of influencing people can, can matter a lot. You know, I think another way that I, I talk to people about this, and this is sort of a, an interesting idea, I think, it, it, it's, a, it, it's kind of remarkable that, that anyone you encounter in your life, I mean, think about it, it's slightly creepy, but like anyone you encounter in your life actually is living inside your body. Like, you know, our voices are now in each of our brains. Our images are now in each of our brains. So, so nobody asked anyone in the world, I mean, think about the number of random texts and emails you get. No one's asking anyone for permission to do anything. They're just, we're just happily going into other people's bodies and residing there. So when I work with CEOs and we're talking about things like hires or who'd have in the team, they're like, you know, I don't know what to do with this guy because he's really good, but you know, really makes me angry and I don't like being... I say, well, simple question when you're thinking about new hires. Who do you want to live in your brain? Your life, if, if, whoever you choose to be around in your life is somebody you should want to live in your brain. If you don't want that person to be in your brain tissue, then then think about it. You know, I actually had a client um, recently who who uh, summarized this idea where I was I was talking about the fact that random texts and emails are, uh, you know, it, it's essentially like like verbal rape, or it's like suddenly somebody's like going into your body, and she joked that we should develop a hashtag for it and call it hashtag text rape. Um, I was thinking for every unsolicited email or text that I get to to be able to think about it deeply. I, I mean, mostly I don't think of it you know, as serious as I, I think it is also humorous. But I do think that it's important to remember the things we're putting into our bodies. Mm-hmm. How do <clears throat> how or which modalities or what options do people have for working with their minds? So if if they've got somebody in their head and they prefer them not to be, or there's a situation that's driving um, thought patterns, it's driving behaviors, they're getting triggered. Um, I'm sure you come across that in terms of yes, a lot. Your, your, your business all the time. What would you advise? So there, I think there are a lot of different ways to, to manage that. Um, the, the module that this comes under when I'm talking to companies about this is the, the module of building confidence. So what are the different ways in which we can build confidence? And there are, there are two types of confidence that, uh, that I think it's important for leaders to be aware of. The, the first is just ordinary confidence. And one of the modalities that's really powerful here is the modality of self-talk. So, for example, and, and again, I'm oversimplifying this, but just to give you a sense of, sort of some very practical things that you can do, there are three things that you can do to build confidence in your brain. The first thing is to avoid using the word not when you are framing your goals. So Daniel Wegner did a bunch of research showing that if you use the word not, like I must not lose my temper at the board meeting, you are under stress, you are more likely to do exactly the opposite of that. In fact, they've done studies looking at soccer players as they're about to score penalties, and they find that if you attach eye-tracking devices to their eyes, if they say do not kick the ball to the right to themselves, the eye goes to the right immediately. So the first thing is, if you, if you want to frame something under uncertainty, 
remember to frame it in the positive. Like, I want to be calm at the board meeting. Not, I want to not be angry. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that it's important to label our emotions. So if you're feeling angry but excited, sort of call it out. If you're feeling anxious but excited, call it out. A lot of people are hesitant to name their emotions because a lot of times you feel two things at the same time. You know, I remember seeing a woman who said, I, I love my children but hate my life. And, and they are the reason I hate my life because I've created all the stuff for myself that I don't know how to pay attention to them. She managed to work through that and realized that in order to love her children without hating her life, she had to change the structure of her life uh, to be able to accommodate that. So uh, learning to identify complex emotions is important. A lot of people, as I said, say you've got to just be positive. But, but the truth is, uh, studies have shown recently that mixed emotions protect you against depression, anxiety, and also somatic symptoms. So, uh, so calling out your mixed emotions is important. And the third thing has to do with the body of research by Ethan Cross and his colleagues uh, that has actually shown that if you're trying to uh, sort of get your, if you're trying to boost your self-esteem and you're just before a board meeting or just before you're, you're talking to your team, you should speak to yourself in the second person and call yourself by name. So if I were at the meeting, rather than my saying, uh, I'm going to crush this, I would say, Srini, you're going to crush this. And the idea is that when you call yourself by name and you refer to yourself in the second or third person, uh, the, 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 what happens is there's an anxious part of you that, that, that is, that's not being acknowledged. If you say, I'm going to crush this, but you're all consumed by the anxious you, it's not very convincing. But if you say, Srini, you're going to crush this, I'm acknowledging there's an anxious part of me but there's also a part of me that's going to crush this, and that's how I do that. So ordinary confidence is, is a, there are a lot of self-help techniques that you can use, self-talk techniques that you can use to change your brain that way. What I find particularly useful is a more abstract idea that I've been developing with a colleague, Jim Selman, um, called existential confidence. And existential confidence is essentially a state of being in which you trust yourself deeply and you know that you are sufficient to deliver on any promises that you have not delivered in the past. You are prepared to live your life into possibilities that are not, let, that, that are not yet part of reality. It's a very different state of being. So firstly, it's different from just a mindset because it's an embodied state of being. You get up in the morning and you realize that you trust yourself. You're trusting yourself does not mean you know how to do something or you're going to definitely be successful. It means you trust yourself to be adaptive, to be responsive, rather than going into your day with a state of anxious anticipation. You then feel that in your bones, and that's really what the embodied piece is. And there are lots of exercises that we do to try to, to get people to get to the state of being. And then, and just to give you an example, you know, a lot of people live their days um, essentially responding to people's problems. Like you get up in the morning, you open your email box and you're like, oh man, okay, I'll see this. I'll get that to you this day. The whole day is just responding to other people's problems. But really what, what we can do is, is I think um, Elon Musk is somebody who points this out. You can't just spend your whole day putting out fires. You really have to spend part of your day living out your inspiration. And so what I ask people is, can you create problems worth solving? Like, why be like the problem solver? Why not be the problem creator? And then get people around to actually solve those problems. It's a very proactive take on life. 
Uh, and it's a very different way to exist. You know, I think a lot of people will say, well, that's, you know, it's easy to say I should trust myself. The business environment is changing so much. There's so much unpredictability. I, I don't really know what to do. Well, I, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that you don't have to navigate forward in business by just controlling things. In fact, navigating without control is a way to develop existential confidence. And you might ask, well, what is that? You know, if everything's changing and the, suddenly the stock market plummeted and uh, you realize your competition is making a product faster than you're making it, you don't really know how to get to the finish line. Well, what you do is rather than focusing on just external variables, you focus on internal things like imagination, simulation. Um, you know, it, essentially, you reconstruct the solution interiorly. And so when I work with companies, I, I work with them on the biology of imagination. The, the book, Your Brain and Business, that you mentioned, The Neuroscience of Great Leaders, is really mostly for, for coaches, uh, but essentially it outlines some very sort of, uh, literal things that people can do to begin to structure some of these interventions that I'm talking about. Uh, but I think, uh, I think building ordinary and existential confidence is key. And once you have existential confidence, you have what I call your psychological center of gravity. You know, it's like if you're working out, you can work out your biceps and your triceps and your back muscles, but if you don't, if you don't work out your core, you really can't do anything. You need to have core stability. So no matter how much agility you need in business, no matter how much creativity, if you don't work out your psychological core, which is what the methods in Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try prescribe, then you're not going to get the strong sense of self and you're not going to develop what I call your psychological center of gravity. What? three bits of advice would you give our audience or executives in terms of upgrading their own personal and professional performance? I'd say number one, remember that mindset offers at least four times the advantage of not using mindset changes. So if you're trying to change yourself or your teams, turn to mindset based on the research of Keller and Price. Uh, number two, I would say uh, do not underestimate um, the, the impact of fear on the brain. Uh, and, and if I frame that positively, I would say recognize the impact of fear on the brain. Because if, you, if, you are, if you're not able to, to, to uh, solve a problem, remember there are ways in which you can change brain blood flow. And because of this phenomenon called neuroplasticity, the brain can change and you can change. The third thing is, is I would say, aside from all of this research, it's really important to recognize so your own ingenuity. So the example I like to give of this is the One Laptop for Child project uh, where they dropped laptops in rural Ethiopia to see what kids who had never seen technology were going to do. Like, what would they, would they eat them? Would they sit on them? Like, what, what would they do? Well, within a few days, they found the on-off button. Within a few weeks, they were singing ABC songs, and they were playing with different apps. And within a few months, they were actually, they hacked Android. And nobody said, you know, I didn't go to computer science school. I don't know how to use a computer. You know, when you, when you rely on your own ingenuity, you unleash your creativity and your curiosity. And I think education is really important. It helps us frame interventions. It helps synthesize knowledge. So for me to be able to translate this, but I can tell you, it can also really get in your way. It can get in the way of your own ingenuity. Remember that your ingenuity matters. You know, Bunny I know is another example of this, uh, where he had a, the Dior brand had a perfume called Shador, and they decided to do to hold focus groups on this, and they held focus groups in this. And the focus groups came back and said, eh, perfume's not that great. Um, and so he believed in the creator. He believed in the product. 
he went with his own ingenuity and it became one of the top selling fragrances in the world. So, you know, I, I, think, I think people who are able to not ignore their ingenuity uh, are able to develop this capacity for intuition. This is another whole big area of sort of, a, you know, how, how can we balance rational thinking with intuitive thinking uh, so that we include intuitive thinking in business decision making. So I, I think those three things, change mindset, remember the impact of fear, and above all, remember your ingenuity, because that's what will really get you through. Thank you. And if people want to reach out to you, Srini, how's best to find you? Um, well, you can find me online. I'm, I'm uh, in a lot of different places. DrSriniPillay.com, T-R-S-R-I-N-I-P-I-L-L-A-Y.com. I'm also at NBGCorporate.com. Um, and I'm on Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, and on LinkedIn. So uh, happy to connect with whoever would like to connect. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. It's been absolutely fascinating. So thank you. Thank you both. Thanks a lot. I'd like to thank Dr. Srini Pillay for his time and insights. Do check out Srini on his social channels. Friendly reminder, do visit www.upgradedexecutive.com, subscribe, and we will send you a special link so you can access the videos one week before we officially release them. You can follow us on all our social channels at Connect with UE and our website, www.upgradedexecutive.com.